Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is Sam Gordano. Sam is a proud husband, father of three, and a physician. He's an author, real estate investor, co-founder of the PassiveAdvantage.com, a website designed to help physicians and other high-income professionals at vetting passive real estate syndication deals. He and his partner have designed tools specifically geared towards passive limited partner investors helping to objectify and bring to light the risk points of various real estate syndication deals prior to choosing to invest. His ultimate goal is for himself and others is financial freedom, right? And and able to live the life of their choosing on their own terms. Today, Sam and I go into detail. We didn't plan it this way. We're going to talk about different ways that he vets deals and sponsors. But, you know, we focused on that investor call when that first connection that he has with an operator and how he vets them, some questions that he asks. And I think as an operator, man, you need to be thinking about these questions and how you would answer them and how you handle yourself during that call because that feeling that that investor gets is so important, right? Outside of your answers, which do play a big role, man, how have you developed your communication skills for that call? So you're showing that you care about them, that you're about something bigger than just getting them into your deal and selling them. So how do you handle yourself on that call? How does your team handle yourself on the call? And you're going to hear he and I talk about that specific thing today. And as a passive investor, man, you're going to hear some questions that maybe is going to help you to ask of sponsors you're looking to invest with to improve your game as a passive investor and take more risk off the table, right? As you're asking better questions of operators. So I know you're going to be a better investor and operator by listening to the show today. Sam, welcome to the show. I know you and I have known each other for a little while now and communicated numerous times, but you are somebody who has been investing for a while and learned a lot about our industry from the passive investor standpoint and have done tons of research around this and are helping lots of other investors now. So I'm looking forward to this conversation and just learning more from you and helping you help our listeners as well. Give us a little more about your current focus. I know right now you're a physician. Maybe you can highlight a little bit of that, plus why you are focusing on passive investing in syndications as well. Well, thank you so much, Whitney, for having me. I really, really do appreciate it. And your podcast is one of the few that I have subscribed to. I feel like from a passive investor standpoint and from real estate syndication in general, it's one of the best out there. And you've provided me a lot of education and a lot of inspiration along the way over the last couple of years that I've been listening to you. So I want to start just by thanking you for that. Yeah. So you're right. I'm a physician. I live in New Jersey and I've been practicing for about 10 years now. And my wife's also a physician. So we met in training and somehow convinced a California girl to stay on the East Coast. So she begrudgingly agreed to that somehow. So we've been practicing for a while. Over the first 10 years of our training, we've kind of done the traditional personal finance that we read and we're told to do in terms of maxing out our pre-tax retirement accounts, you know, paying off the student loans, children's 529s, and kind of working through those things over the first 10 years. And then back in about 2017 or 18, when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act came out, 
living as a resident in New Jersey, we when losing the salt deduction kind of hit us pretty hard from a tax standpoint. And we're both W-2 employees. There wasn't a lot of creative things that we could do to mitigate those additional taxes or that were decreasing some of the write-offs. So we were looking for ways to sort of diversify our income. And at that point is when I started to look more into real estate and the different options. You had a tax issue and you were trying to minimize the tax burdens in some way. Is that kind of the gist of it? And that's what pushed you into real estate? Yeah. And I think the other thing was we had kind of exhausted a lot of... We were already doing all the traditional sort of personal finance things. And we're like, I think early in the career of a physician and everyone comes into it from a different place from a financial standpoint, it may not be the right time for like physicians to get into these sort of more alternative assets or real estate investing when you're still trying to figure out how to buy a house, pay off your student loans, stuff like that. So I find that the sweet spot where physicians start to look into these alternative investments is maybe that eight to 10 years out usually when the loans start to get whittled down and they have a little more disposable income. And it just so happened to coincide with the additional tax changes. And that sort of was like the perfect storm for me to start looking into real estate at that time. Nice. Well, tell me why real estate syndications versus maybe becoming a hard money lender or, you know, doing some flipping or buying your own single family rentals. There's so many different ways you can invest in real estate, right? Why did you land on real estate syndications specifically in commercial real estate? Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I actually kind of dabbled in learning about all those things that you just mentioned. Like I said, my wife and I are physicians. We're both full-time and I don't have a lot of it. I have three kids, six and under. So combined with the full-time job, I don't have a lot of additional time. So I knew right off the bat, even though the real estate realm is kind of interesting to me. I didn't want to have to devote a ton of time to doing it. So I kind of went towards the more passive things and then sort of weeded out what I thought may be a better fit. So I looked into turnkey investing and I realized New Jersey is not the most optimal state for those turnkey investments. So it would have to be an investment that would be out of state where I'd be more reliant on a property manager and I heard I had a couple friends who had done those and had a few horror stories with property managers sort of not being so truthful in some things. And I sort of veered away from that pretty quickly. I didn't want to do any investment like loans or hard money lending where that increased my taxable income. So I wanted something that could increase my income, but I then had some tax advantages such as depreciation and things that I can offset it. And then a friend of mine brought up real estate syndications and that started this sort of open this Pandora's box for me back in 2017 to where I kind of devoted a ton of my education time into it. And at first I didn't realize how much I would like learning about it. And it became sort of this semi-obsession slash passion where I just tried to absorb every podcast, including your own, as many books as I could on forums such as bigger pockets and things like that, just trying to get as much education as I could. And because of the fact that a lot of these investments have high minimums, I wanted to give myself at least a year before I jumped into it just to make sure I had some degree of education. And when I saw that you could invest passively, you could partner up with sponsors that are getting access to deals and that you couldn't, and then get some tax advantages. It felt like sort of it was just speaking to me. And that's sort of how the syndication realm came about. Would you think like, wait a minute, that's just too good to be true. You can't do that. Anything's like that, that you're hesitant at first? 
Absolutely. The first person that brought it up to me, there was a group that, and this, this is like the beginning part of my education. And I had looked up this group on Google and there was all these like legal things. And at first I was like, you know, I should just run the other way. But then I realized that it was just that group that had some issues. But if I hadn't done some of that research early on, I probably would have just jumped in with that group. And it made me realize, you know what, let me take a step back. Let me take some time to really educate myself. And yeah, you're right. At first, I was like, this is too good to be true. Like, how do people not know about this? And then as I learned about it more, that sort of segued into trying to then switch from my own individual knowledge for myself to trying to maybe help other people learn more about it as well. It's interesting. You said you gave yourself a year. You know, you said, I'm, I'm going to wait a year, educate myself before I make that leap. And then you just said, you know, you may have gone with that first group if you hadn't have done that, right? If you hadn't have said, I'm going to take this much time to educate myself. Give me just a couple of ways that you figured out to best educate yourself or that you would recommend to other people now. Like, was there a specific book or was it just like jumping in and meeting people and asking good questions? What was the best way that you found to really feel comfortable investing in syndications like this? Yeah, sure. So it was a little bit of everything. I think the podcast medium is huge to help, at least for me, because I have like a 30 to 40 minute commute every day. So I was able to listen to the podcast and, and I've, you know, at first it took some weeding out to figure out the ones that were providing the most consistent value. But then once that was the case, it's just like, you know, you're not really doing a whole lot, but you're just listening and absorbing things. And then there was a book called The Passive Income Physician that I first read back in 2017. So it kind of spoke to me from a physician side of things. And that opened up my eyes to just the realm of syndications. From a nuts and bolts standpoint, it's not the most detailed from that, but just the philosophy of it was probably one of the first books I read. And then there are other books like James Candesemi has a book that's very good. And Sean Cook, the sort of surname for, I think it's MG Capital or it has another books. And then Brian Burke had released a recent book, which wasn't available at that time. So those are some of like the hallmark books for passive investors to learn about syndications. And then Joe Fairless has a book that's focused on syndication, both from the active and the passive. So those four books, excluding Brian Burke's, were kind of the ones I read from that standpoint that were very, very helpful, combined with the podcast, combined with the forums, and then combined with doing like what we're doing, like talking to other sponsors and asking questions, figuring one new question will come about during a conversation, and I'll go look it up. So it was just sort of a combination of all those things that edified the knowledge over that first year. No, that's awesome. Everybody's looking for where to get that education, right? Where do I learn these things, get answers to our questions? And I know of most of those books that you just mentioned and great stuff. I've read most of those as well. But let's jump in now to what do you know now that you wish you had known when you had gotten started? But maybe we break that down a little bit through different things, like maybe vetting an operator or a deal and some specific things around those things that you've learned. And even after a few years of investing passively that you've learned that you wish you had known in 2018 when you started investing passively. So what about the operator? How do you vet an operator? How do you even find an operator you want to vet with? What are some philosophies or thoughts behind that now that you live by? Absolutely. That first year during that process of education, I find that to get the most out of that time, you kind of have to be an active learner. And that's kind of what I did through my years of education at becoming a physician. And that's always been helpful to me. And I sort of, it's the only way I really know to learn. So 
sometimes I feel like if you just listen to stuff and you don't write things down as you're doing it or take notes as you're doing it, you may absorb some of it, but it's not the same quality as if you're more active in it. So during that first year, I would take notes and then eventually I'd sort of transpose those notes into an Excel sheet, looking at the main categories, which aren't novel that you look at as a passive investor. It may be for some new investors, but the main ones are the sponsor, the market, and the deal. And I agree wholeheartedly that the sponsor part of that sort of trifecta is definitely the most important. The difficulty is it's the most hard to objectively evaluate, which is good and bad because I think your instincts or your intuition is probably the most accurate assessment of these things. So when you talk to a sponsor or you've had several interactions with a sponsor, I think the most important thing is that feel you get from when you first speak to the sponsor, how they seem to be honest. Are they trying to sell you? Are they just trying to kind of get to know you? Like, where do you feel they're coming from? And then there's the nuts and bolts of the sponsor component. How many full cycle deals do they have? How long have they been doing syndications and not just real estate itself? If they're not so experienced, do they have a member of the team that's very experienced? What asset class is it one you're interested in? What geographic location is it located in? So there's a few variables that you look at in relation to the sponsor, but undoubtedly, and the most important is the feel you get and the conversations you've had and kind of feeling that out because your intuition is hard to explain, but it's the most accurate assessment of these things often. Could you maybe provide any kind of example? Obviously, don't name any names, but like maybe a conversation you've had with an operator that went really well versus one that maybe it didn't give you that feeling you're talking about. How was that approach, you know, for the operator that's listening right now, just for them to think through that, what you just said, like, (laughs) I mean, numerous things you just said, but help them to hear that conversation a little bit. What turned you off about a specific operator versus, you know, making you ask more questions or want to eventually partner with someone? Sure. No, makes sense. Well, the great thing about it is often the sponsors that endear me the most, it's hard for them to do anything about that. They either have it or they don't. Meaning like you have to get a feel that somebody actually cares about what you're talking about, as opposed to they're just focused on selling you something. And it's almost as if like, not to talk bad about car salesmen or anything like that, or people who call you telemarketers, but there's some people you just get the feel they're really trying to sell you something and they're not really interested in you at all and trying to see, is there a fit here? Is there a relationship here? And people ask me whether it's in the business realm or physician realm, this similar types of questions, because this kind of skirts across all fields, but it's almost like you can't fake it. So I think the biggest thing I would say for sponsors to try to help with that is to really focus on what I can do to show that I really care about the investor as a person and what I can do to provide value as opposed to focus on how do I get this investor to sign up for my deal? And it's a mindset thing that some people can or can't do. So from that standpoint, but I think the biggest negative is there are some sponsors that I spoke to and right after the conversation, I'm like, I'm running the other way. Like there's no way I want to invest in this sponsor's deal. I just felt dirtier after the conversation and and I just felt like I was really being sold something. And that to me, I mean, it's just maybe me personally, but it just kind of turns me off a little bit. Did they like just jump into a deal or jump into trying to get you to invest right away? 
what was it that they said, or is there anything that you could highlight there that's like, man, you know, they just handled this so poorly, or I felt this way because they did this? Generally, when a conversation, when you start a conversation with a sponsor, they ask a little bit about you. And some people, while you're doing that, they let you go. And then some people kind of interrupt you throughout the process and bring up things about their organization before you even had a chance to kind of give some background on yourself. So they're really not listening. They're just waiting for opportunities to say something to you. And it's always in all conversations, it's always harder to be a listener, but I look for that people who are good listeners in that process. Cause I think that generally shows confidence and comfort in what they're doing. And they're not as on edge on that. So I would say trying to interrupt you when you're talking initially to kind of give a little background on yourself. And then they quickly veer towards what they would do by you investing in their syndication. And it's not as much about seeing if there's a true fit there. I'm listening. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's awesome. I feel like that's such a good example, Sam. You know, I got like two calls yesterday. One of them, as soon as I answer the phone, they say, did you know your car warranty is about to expire? <laughs> that's what that's it made right. me think of. It's like, what? Who is this? And that's kind of the way you feel. Right. I'm like, nope, thank you. Block that number, right? And so, yeah, we don't want to be that way as operators, for sure. I just think that's a great example of just how important that conversation is. And here's a thought, because this is something I've had to do personally, is like as we have more and more investors that are wanting to talk to us, right, or work with us, like we want to have those conversations with them. I would love to speak to every one of them individually, but guess what? I can't. I have to like groom someone on the team to do that, right? And I waited as long as I possibly could to do that, you know, because it's like, I want to have those conversations. I like those conversations and getting to know the investors. However, it's just not possible for me to do them all, right? So how do you feel about, hey, when you schedule a call or you finally get to talk to the team, And you're not getting to talk to the main operator. What are your thoughts around that as a past investor? I wonder that personally, and I know many other operators that are listening wonder the same thing. How is that viewed as a potential LP or passive investor when, well, you know, I didn't get to talk to the main operator, but, you know, I got to talk to such and such on the team. Yeah. And there were a couple operators that that was the case. And one of them I did invest with. So it's definitely not a red flag for me. And most passive investors, especially if they've looked into it and got some education, they realize there are certain groups of syndication teams that are just large enough to the point where it's just not logistically possible to talk to every new investor. I think if there's a way to sort of have that sort of investor relations person reiterate that if you wanted to, or if there's additional questions that I can't answer, then you could have access to Whitney to where it's as if there's a possibility and you may get a third of maybe 10, 15% of investors that take that. It's like when you give your cell phone out to somebody, like most people handle it like a patient or something like that. Most people handle it pretty well and don't abuse it, but there are some people that will, but it's not the majority. So I think if you offered something like that, where the investor relations person that is the one communicating that first sort of communication says, you know what, if I can't answer anything, You have the ability to reach out to Whitney himself, but he just can't speak with every investor. But we can certainly make that happen if that's the case to where they feel like that you're not trying not to speak with them, but it's just there's logistics involved. I think something like that may be able to offset it. But like I said, there was one sponsorship team that I spoke to the investor relations person multiple times. They were very good. I was satisfied with the talk and I never spoke with the actual sort of head sponsor of that team. And I invested with them anyway. 
What if that person can't answer all your questions? I know you mentioned like there's an option for you to talk to the operator. However, maybe this person is not extremely knowledgeable even about the syndication business. Is that going to turn you off completely? Maybe a little bit, only because that person, if they're in the investor relations position, they should really have the ability to answer most. I mean, most of the questions I ask, I mean, they may be slightly more detailed than other limited partners, but they're not coming out of left field. I mean, uh, at least I hope they're not, you know, (laughs) but they really should be able to answer most of those questions. Like how many full cycle deals, information about the market, what's the business plan. Some of these things I can get from the investment summary, but some of the things it's nice to have a conversation, especially when you first meet a sponsor. Like if I've invested two, three times in this group, I already know the group. I know what their communication is. And it's really that first communication that you want that investor relations person to be prepared because that's sort of just like anything, it's a reflection of the team. And if they seem unprepared, or then it may reflect badly on the team, because that's the only contact you have. Yes, could not agree more. I'm grateful just for you diving in on that, because I feel like it's a great subject for operators to think about, right? I've struggled with that, because I want to take those calls, but it's just not possible to take them all, which is a great problem. However, there's other issues that come up because of that, right? And I know that there's so many things we could get into about the deal and the market and whatnot. And unfortunately, we're running a long time as far as doing all of that. But I feel like the operator is like the first link in the due diligence, right? Of investing as an LP or passive investor. I'm just thankful to dive in. And before we have to move to some other questions, Sam, anything else around, say, the operator specifically that as an LP are like do's and don'ts or, hey, if you see this, stay away or anything else you want to share just around the operator specifically as an LP? So some of the objective criteria, like the biggest thing is the feel you get. I can't emphasize that enough because it's really important and you have to trust your intuition. And whether it's in this field or any field, oftentimes your intuition is correct. And it's just a matter of supporting that feeling with the objective information. And that's kind of how I feel about the operator as well. Like the biggest thing is the intuition. And then after that, I generally look for operators or teams that have at least five full cycle deals from an experience standpoint. I'm just not looking for home runs. I'm not looking to take excessive risk. I'm looking at the long game as a passive investor. And I want people who have done this before. So I look at that sort of people who have had five full cycle deals. It used to be that we had a criteria that if somebody has been in a real estate syndicator prior to 2008, which was the last like main recession. But as we get further and further along from that, there's just not that many syndicators that have that much experience. Now, most of the people that have are into sort of the private equity space and they're not sort of dealing with the limited partners and individual investors and stuff like that as much. So I don't use that criteria as much, but I would say the five full cycle deals, the geographic market, is it something that I'm interested in where they're focused on? Is this a new sort of investment in a different market? Like if somebody had deals and all their deals are in Texas and now they're going to Florida or so. I don't generally like to invest in that first deal out just because of the fact that they need to kind of get their feet wet. And I'm not really interested in being part of that when that happens. I mean, it may be a great deal, but it's just not worth the risk to me, you know? And then is there a succession plan? If God forbid something happened to the sponsor, is the deal going to implode or is somebody there to kind of take over that? Those are some of the variables. There's others, but those are some of the big ones that we look at. Oh, what's the percentage that they accept from self-directed IRAs versus taxable investing as somebody who invests post-tax money or taxable money? 
if a majority of the investors are self-directed IRAs or pre-tax money, then they may not be as interested in the tax benefits. Whereas someone like me who is, I want to see at least 50% or more of the investors that are investing cash or taxable money. And these may vary from a deal-to-deal basis, but some sponsors have more of a focus on certain types of investors and things like that. So, So those are some of them. That's just great insight for sure. And we could talk about this all day long, I know. But I want to ask just a few other things because I love your perspective from the LP side. And just as much as you've educated yourself, it's great. So what about you're talking to an operator? What do you like to see as far as them being prepared for a potential downturn? One of my sort of classic questions that I'll ask an operator, there's two usually. And one is, what makes you different? Because I find that it gets to the heart of sort of what they identify with and what their business plan is that may be different from others or why they have a competitive advantage in the space. So it's sort of a broad question, but it gives the operator a chance to be that gives me a feel for really where they feel like their identity is that separates them. And the second is tell me about a deal that's gone bad. So I don't even ask them if a deal has gone bad. I say, tell me about a deal that's gone bad. Cause I just assume that there's something that's gone bad. So if they've said there's no deal that's gone bad, then either they don't have enough experience because there's always something that comes up. Even if the deal winds up good, like you can talk about, you know, a storm or a fire or something that happened that you had to kind of think on your feet. So I like to see how the operator responds to that deal. And then the follow up to that question is, how do you mitigate that risk going forward? Or I don't ask them specifically, how do they prepare for a downturn? But I just want to see what their preparation is, what they've learned from that experience and what they've done to correct it, to give me an idea into the mindset of how much foresight they're looking for to, to prevent that kind of thing in the future. That's great insight right there. No, love that. Love that. And even as an operator, like I want to make sure my investor relations person is prepared to answer questions like that, right? And they do, I think, but I'm positive we've talked about those things, but I think I want to dive in even more to say, hey, are you prepared to answer questions like this, right? Like this is something that we should share with investors when they want to know something about a deal that's gone bad, right? Or something, how we do stand out, what makes us different. What about, do you have any predictions, Sam, just about the real estate market right now for the next six to 12 months and anything you are doing different than normal because of the current market? It's difficult to say. I mean, obviously the market is red hot right now, whether it's in the single family space or residential space or the multifamily space. At this point, what scares me is the amount of capital that's out there because it takes away the culpability of the sponsor. Like when I started investing back in 2017 and 18, I would say probably 60% to 70% of the deals seemed reasonable and from different variables, but from a risk standpoint, like I look very closely at the debt structure. I look at the rent growth projections, the expense projections to get an idea of what the risk is going forward. But the deals I see now, I would say 50 to 60% are not reasonable. And it's just because there's so much capital that's flooding the market. People are getting away with putting substandard. And it's hard because it's like, is it a reset and this is the new normal? Or is it just a frothy market? So I think it's probably a little bit of both. I don't think we're going to see what we saw several years ago. I think there will be growth going forward, in my opinion, at least for the next year or so. So I think I'm still looking to actively get into deals because... You know, you have two options. You either stay on the sidelines or you invest. And the way that I mitigate that risk is I try to use analysis tools that we have to kind of see if there's any obvious red flags in those deals. And 
every deal will have something that's a little bit of a red flag or at least something that you need to question. But I try to sort of mitigate the risk that way. And then the second component is just diversify. So I have sponsors that I want in certain geographic markets throughout the US. And then I have other asset classes such as self-storage, mobile home, some other esoteric things that I do to try to diversify. But I think it's hard to predict the future. And I listen to all the number of podcasts and economists and stuff. But the reality is, is that nobody really knows. And all you can do is diversify, try to make the best decisions you can, and then just kind of put your seatbelt on and hope it works out. That's right. You eventually have to make a decision and a move, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sam, what are some daily habits that you are disciplined about that have helped you achieve success? You know, Whitney, it's funny you ask that. And we're speaking in the morning time. And I was just every morning when I wake up, my routine is that I sort of involve in a little bit of prayer. And and that's sort of the routine. And I think that's extremely important for me personally. And then the second component of that is thinking of things as I pray that I'm thankful for. And I start every day that way with the attitude of gratitude and just kind of thinking about things that are beautiful in my life that I've been blessed with. I have so many things that I can be thankful for and focusing on that as opposed to, oh, I got to go to work. I got to get up. I got to do this. I got It just changes your mindset at the start of the day. And to me, that allows me to then sort of take on the day in a more positive perspective. And I think that carries over to everything. And as you do it over time, it's just like anything. Consistency is more important than sort of these drips and drabs of opportunities. As you do that over time, it truly changes your mindset. So I think that's the biggest thing for me that has contributed to my perspective, which is translated to other things. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. And it is a consistency, right? Over a long period of time. And how do you like to give back? So my wife and I have a donor advised fund that we contribute to. And from there, we then sort of disperse it out to different charitable causes and things that are important to us from a personal standpoint. And so that's sort of the main way. And then the other way is through education. I'm part of a hospital that has 800 physicians. I'm sort of like the personal finance guy. And now People are interested in learning more about real estate. So I'm trying to educate them. So I think the other processes for giving back is through education and people that are trying to learn more about this arena. Awesome. Well, Sam, you've definitely given back a lot to us today. I'm just grateful for your perspective as an LP and being willing to share that and help other operators like myself and many others that are listening to improve you know, how they operate, but also the passive investors that are listening, helping them to think through this. And I think it's neat. I know we focused on that first phone call a lot because I think it's so important, right? I mean, it is so huge, important. Huge. Maybe you can come back and we can talk a little more about maybe the deal or the markets, more specific things like that. But I think that first connection with an operator is so important. And so I appreciate you just highlighting that today. But tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you and learn more about you. Yeah, so we have a website. It's passiveadvantage.com, where we have education material. There's a free ebook there on betting real estate syndication deals, going into more specifics of some of the things we talked about. And we also have some unique tools that was sort of part of that original Excel spreadsheet that I created that's now been sort of professionalized from much more technical people than myself to kind of make it ready for prime time to where we have specific metrics that we look at within the sponsor, the market, the deal to help highlight any risk points or red flags in the deal. And they can find more about that at PassiveAdvantage.com. And you can reach me at Sam at PassiveAdvantage.com via email. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. 
LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate, while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital, making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success.